There's enough information in these notes that you could study the book of James for a couple of months if you look up all the passages and really consider what's in there. Every one of those references I looked up. So I hope you'll look them up as well. All right, we all have notes. Uh, we are in the book of James. If you'll open your Bibles to the book of James, this is a Bible conference, so it's a good idea to bring a Bible. <laughs> so I hope you have your Bible and open it. And I'm going to have to teach this book of five chapters in five classes. And that is not an easy undertaking, and that's one of the reasons I gave you the notes, because there's more here than I could possibly say in the short time that I'm going to have. But I am going to try to hit the high points, and I'm going to try to bring out some things that oftentimes are not brought out, and maybe to untie some knots uh, in the book of James that uh, trouble many people. So uh, just bear with me, and uh, we are going to rely on the Spirit of God to do what He alone can do. Let's join together at the throne of God's grace and ask His blessing on our time together. Fathers, we come before the throne of your grace this evening. The very first thing that we need to do is be examining ourselves. We need to make sure that there is nothing in our life that is an offense to you. If we are convicted by the Spirit of unkind thoughts or words or faithless actions, then, Father, we need to confess those things and receive the cleansing that you have promised on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. It is our desire to be filled by your Spirit so that we can receive the utmost that you have to offer us tonight and through the weekend. Father, as we open your word, may God the Holy Spirit bring quiet on this group, quiet our souls, deliver our minds from distraction, put your hedge of protection around this place, may your mighty angels watch over us, because we do live in very turbulent and perilous times. We ask, Father, that you will break for us the bread of life and nourish our souls and bring us closer into conformity to the marvelous and wonderful character of your Son and our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The book of James is going to teach us, and I intend to convince you, that you cannot be saved without works. <laughs> I see all kinds of looks of shocks. <laughs> you will see. This is probably the, the biggest obstacle that people run into in the book of James. So if you look on your notes, and I'm not a good note reader when I teach, uh, I'm going to try to hit some high points. And I actually prepared this first class tonight by highlighting the points that I want to make to you. And if I can't, I may just have to lay the notes aside and just go through the text. We'll just see how it works out. Uh, but faith without works is dead. This is the thing most people think of when they think of the book of James, and that is a very true statement. Uh, if a man has faith and has not works, can faith save him? But we must understand how James is using the word save. He's talking about salvation for those who are already saved. That's why the title of our conference is The Salvation of the Saints. 
At the top of your first page in the introduction, you'll notice that there are three phases to the plan of God's salvation. Phase one is what we call justification. This is where we enter eternal life by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But God's plan and purpose for our lives doesn't end there. There's a phase two, and that's called sanctification. This is what we call the part between the cross and the crown. This is the life that we're living here. And the Bible uses the word salvation, and this is what James, of course, is going to be talking about. Daily deliverance of the believer from sin and carnality. And if you're like me, and I hope you are, because I don't think anyone honestly uh, could evade this. If you seriously read through the book of James and you are not convicted of failure in your life, you are not reading the book of James. There is a whole list, and I don't think I'm going to give them all to you, but there's a whole list of things that we need to be saved from. I believe they're on page three. There are at least 10 things that you need to be saved from. I'll let you look at those that are listed within the book of James. And that is the plan of God for our salvation. Jesus Christ finished work on the cross, applied to us through God the Holy Spirit, delivering us from the things that defeat us and lead to a weak and ineffective Christian life that keep us from coming to spiritual maturity. And as we'll see, the book of James is all about spiritual maturity. So that's phase two, salvation or sanctification. And then we have phase three. This is the ultimate, and it is glorification in the presence of the Lord. In phase one, we're delivered from the penalty of sin. In phase two, we're delivered from the practice of sin. And in phase three, we will ultimately be delivered from the very presence of sin. So when we see the word save, I want you to always think of it this way. When you see the word save or saved in the Bible, you should ask yourself the question and look for the answer in the context, saved from what? What does he want us to be saved from? We're going to see that James uses the word saved five times and it never relates to eternal salvation. Not one time in the text. It's also interesting that James uses the word perfect five times. The saved and the perfect go together because perfect doesn't mean sinless. Perfect means mature and complete. And we're going to see that very quickly as we get into the text. Now, one of the things that I'm going to do as we go through is I'm going to try to pick out what to me are key verses in each chapter. And I'm going to build the chapter around those key verses. So as you're open to the book of James, I want you to look with me at verse 19 and we're going to read verse 19 to 22, which I feel like is the real heart of this first chapter. You'll see how it fits as we work our way through the rest of the verses. So then, he's drawing a conclusion here. My beloved brethren, I might point out to you that James uses the phrase brethren, my brethren or beloved brethren, 15 times in this little book. And that tells us something, doesn't it? He's talking to believers. He's not talking to unsaved people. He's talking to those who have trusted Christ, who are members of the royal family of God, and he has a message for us. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. We could say, hungry for the word and self-controlled in your conduct. I'll, I'll touch on this a little bit later uh, when we come back to it. 
What do we want to be as mature believers? Eager to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Well, you say, that's good. How do we get there? Well, he's going to tell us. Verse 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive with meekness the implanted word, or you could change the wording a little, the word implanted. The word implanted is in the passive, and it tells us something. You have to allow someone to plant the word. You remember the parable that Jesus told that the sower went out to sow, and as he was sowing seed in the field, the seed fell on different kinds of soil. The sower is the son of man, he said, and the sower sows to you and I through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. But we have to ask ourselves the question, what kind of soil am I? Am I going to allow that seed to take root and spring up and bear fruit? And that's, of course, God's desire for each and every one of us. <laughs> Let me just mention the little phrase, save your souls, in the time James was writing, simply means to save your life. Receive the word implanted which will save your life. How is it going to save your life? Well, it's going to save your life from ruin. It's going to save your life from ineffectiveness. It's going to save your life from powerlessness. It's going to save your life from a lot of sorrow and suffering that comes from living in sin. Now, that's basically the thrust I see in the first chapter. Now, let's see how it fits with the flow of the text and I'm just going to go a few verses at a time. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know, of course, that James was the half-brother of the Lord, uh, Jude, of course, being his brother. And I don't know about you, but if we were writing and we were uh, the half-brother of the Lord, we'd probably mention that to someone. You know, by the way, I grew up with him, but they don't mention that because that's not the important thing. It's never the physical relationship. It's always the spiritual relationship and the spiritual relationship of a slave. And I hope you understand this tonight. The highest thing you'll ever attain in this life is when you become a slave of Jesus Christ. I would rather be a slave of Jesus Christ than the emperor of the world because the emperor of the world is going to pass away and the world is going to pass away all of the things that are in it are going to pass away. To be a servant of Jesus Christ makes a difference for eternity, not just in our lives, but in the lives of many around us. He says in verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. First test. When you went through your last trial, were you giggling? Were you celebrating? Because he's commanding us to do this. He doesn't just say count it a little joy. He says count it all joy. Now you say, I find that hard to do, and I can understand that, and James is going to explain to us how we can overcome the problem. He says count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing. Uh, by the way, as I read, I failed to read verse 22, which I should have gotten to because it's the real issue. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. Everything James is going to say to us is something we need to hear. And everything that we need to hear is something that we need to do. It's great to hear it. 
The question is, does that hearing translate into life change, transformation, and action on our part? So here's the first thing he wants you to hear, and he doesn't just want you to hear it, he wants you to do it. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. How can we do that? Because we know something that the world doesn't know. We know that the testing of our faith produces patience. You could translate patience, endurance. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The very first test that James lays before us is the ability to rejoice in our trials because we know what the world doesn't know. <coughs> Excuse me. I have a bit of a sinus <coughs> infection. Everything hits. Everything at our house is broken down. <laughs> the mowers are broken down. The washer's broken down. Everything's breaking up. I just say to Nan, hey, it's conference week. <laughs> when people host us in other places, all of their stuff breaks down. It's just the way it goes. And along with it, I usually end up getting a little bit sick. So bear with my uh, sinus infection. Let patience, endurance, by the way, endurance with joy have its perfect work. And what is that perfect work? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Doesn't mean you're going to have all the money you want. Doesn't mean you're going to have all the possessions you want. It means that you're going to have a complete and mature spiritual character. Now you say, I can't wait to reach that. I remember when I was in our church in Australia, a guy came up to me and he said, you'll never guess what happened last Friday. And I said, what happened? He said, I reached spiritual maturity last Friday. I said, really? He said, yep, last Friday I reached spiritual maturity. We'll never forget that spiritual maturity is an ongoing goal as long as we're on this earth. Remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3? Not as though I had already attained either, am already made perfect, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things that lie behind, looking forward to what is ahead, I press on for the high calling that I have in Christ. And we're never going to get to a point where we can plateau and coast on our laurels. And that's why Paul said, forget what's behind. Look, folks, we all have failures in our life. We all have regrets. Forget them. They're covered at the cross. Confess them, correct them, and move on. You have to realize that sometimes God allows us to get into situations where our weakness and frailty comes out so that he can mature us beyond that point. You know, it's painful. It hurts. It hurts when we let others down. It hurts when we fail. It hurts when we have to go through the shame, when others know of the failures in our life. And that little bit of pain is good to do two things. Number one, it teaches us a little bit of humility. You know, you're not what you think you are. It's what you think that you are. We have to learn a little bit of humility. And the second thing is it puts places within us the desire to rise above that, to go on in spiritual growth and to become a more mature reflection of Jesus Christ. Now, something happens when we go through trials, and even if we're rejoicing in them, uh, this is going to happen, and that is we're going to realize we don't have all the answers. Yeah, have you ever come to a point within your recent life when you realize you didn't have all the answers? Look what he says in verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know, I often run into people who say, God just doesn't answer my prayers. This is a good place to take it. God doesn't answer the prayer of the doubter. Why is that? Because the prayer is not a prayer of faith. Faith and fear, faith and doubt cannot live in the same house, in the same soul. Either we're trusting or we're fearing. And so what James is telling us here is when you come to those times, and I, I stand before you tonight to tell you that there was a night when someone reminded me of this verse, James 1.5, when I was at a crossroads and I had no idea where to go, and they told me, James 1.5 said that if you'll ask God for wisdom, he will give it, and I humbled myself and asked him for wisdom, and I have to tell you, had I not done that that night, I would not be here in front of you this evening. God is faithful to his word. If we believe that he desires the best for us, that he wants us to know how to navigate the troubled waters of life, how to find our way through the maze of this world with all of its distractions and burdens and fears and sorrows and everything else, if we believe that, then we have to believe when we're in that conundrum and we're standing at the crossroads, God is going to be faithful if we ask in faith. I urge you at those times when you're burdened, when you're heavy, when the world seems dark, and folks, it's coming. It's coming from so many different angles in our world. There are so many things that are breaking down. But I don't want you to look at the future in fear. I want you to look at the future in hope because whatever God allows, he allows for several reasons, but one of which, have you noticed that a lot of people are starting to get interested in the end times? You know, my, uh, my, my marvelous tech guy, and by the way, I forgot to mention the, the folks that are here tonight that are on our team, uh, and I should have mentioned them. I'll do that at the beginning of our next class because they do so much for me, but uh, Paul Stanton is my tech guy, and he does all the little uh, one-minute clips that go up. Uh, and you know the ones that, that are getting the most attention are the ones that deal with the rapture of the church. People are worried about what's going on and they're looking ahead and they're wondering, are there any answers? Is there any hope? Can we see a purpose in what's going on? So God does it to wake up the unbeliever and bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ, but he also does it to bring you and I into a focus on why we're here. We are here for a reason as God, as long, as long as God leaves us in this life, he has a plan and a purpose. And he intends us to be ready. He intends us to be equipped. He intends us to put on the full armor of God so that we can hold the fort in the place that he has placed us. And there are no big places and small places. God doesn't look down on pastors, missionaries, and evangelists as his favorite children and all the rest are just the Johnny come ladies. Every child of God is loved infinitely. Every child of God has a purpose that is of infinite value. And so what James is telling us here is that, yes, we lack wisdom. Yes, we need wisdom, particularly at times of testing and trial. And we can go to the Heavenly Father and not like, 
You know, in the Wizard of Oz, when they come before the mighty Oz and they're trembling and fearful and almost falling down. No, you don't enter the throne room of God that way. We're encouraged in Hebrews 4 to come boldly to the throne of grace. When? To find grace and help in our time of need. Don't be ashamed that you're in need. Be thankful that that need is driving you to the throne room of God where you bow before the Heavenly Father and you ask Him to give you the wisdom and guidance and direction that you need. So ask in faith. Because to ask doubting, you know, like the guy that uh, told the woman, God will remove mountains if you have enough faith. She had a beautiful picture window, but there was a big mountain in the way and she wanted to have a view beyond it. So she prayed one night and she said, Lord, the, your word says that you're the mover of mountains and I'm praying that you'll move that mountain. And she went to bed thinking, well, asking to move the mountain. We'll see what happens in the morning. She got up in the morning, looked out, the mountains are still there, and she said, I knew he wouldn't do it. <laughs> Don't pray doubting. By the way, I know of a church that moved a mountain. How amazing is this? Small, humble little church finally got enough money together to buy a little plot of ground where they were able to build a church and they got the church built and then the city planners or whoever does all the inspections came along and they said, well, you can't start meeting until you have a parking lot that is suitable for the number of people that you're going to have. At that time, they just had a small little group. This was up in New England. Actually happened. Board came together and the elders were saying to the pastor, I guess we're just going to have to sell it and try to go somewhere else. And he said, no, we're not. We're going to pray. He said, let's pray. They started praying. They prayed about a week. Guy came knocking on the door one day. The pastor's in his office and he said, do you own this place? And they said, yeah. He said, well, listen, I'm a developer and we need field dirt and we've done a study in the area and we found that this hill that's on the backside of your property is just exactly what we need. And the pastor said, well, we were hoping to move it and build a parking lot. And the guy said, if you'll give us some dirt, we'll build your parking lot. They moved the mountain. It does happen. Don't be double-minded. Literally, the Greek says, don't be too sold. Don't be double-minded. Let's move on in verse 9. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. You know, we have two kinds of people here tonight. We have the high and we have the low. And you may think you're high and you may be low. And someone else may think you're low and you may be high. But let the brother, the lowly brother, glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. No sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass and its flower falls. The beautiful appearance perishes and the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Notice that he says the lowly brother and the rich, both believers. Now God has a plan for people in every position, every status of life. The lowly guy is the guy who has very little. He's a guy who's always struggling. And by the way, keep in mind that each one of these little vignettes, each one of these little pictures that, Jude, uh, that James gives us, and he's such a magnificent painter of pictures. I mean, he just draws portraits in front of us all the time. But every one of them that he sets in front of you is going to come up later in the book. 
There are so many connections. The book of James could be like a jigsaw puzzle. And every piece relates to every other piece and they all connect and it's absolutely amazing. We're gonna meet the poor man and the rich man again in chapter two next hour. So stay tuned. <laughs> Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. You say, what exaltation? Well, the exaltation of being one with the person of Jesus Christ. You remember what Paul says to the Ephesians? You who were dead in your trespasses and sins, he has made alive and raised you up and seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. You know, that doesn't depend on social status or financial capability. The lowest and the richest and the richest find equal standing, equal provision, equal opportunity in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says to the lowly, to the poor, and there were many very poor people in the time of James, celebrate, rejoice, and exult in the exaltation that God has given you. I hope that you have some grasp of what it means. Paul's favorite little phrase, it involves so much doctrinal truth that it would be hard to even expound on it in a week in Christ. To be in Christ means everything. And I hope that each and every one of you, some of you I don't know, there will be people listening to this class later. There will surely be those who are without Christ. They need to understand without Christ, they're without hope and they're without eternal life. But to enter into Christ, I had a most marvelous opportunity to witness to a guy the other day and he told me he was dying and I told him there's a promise that you need to claim and he said, what is that? And I quoted John 3.16 to him and the tears started running down his face. He said, I had kidney cancer. They took my kidney out. Now it's gotten into the other kidney. There's nothing the doctors can do. But as I shared the gospel with him, the tears started running down his face. Such a marvelous opportunity. We're surrounded by people that don't have the hope that we have. We're surrounded by people that don't have the light that we have. And rather than us looking at the future world events, all the things that are going on and beginning to tremble in fear, we need to have that stability and that strength and that courage and that hope and that joy that we can share with other people. We are here to be the lifesavers of those around us. We are on a mission of saving souls. And each and every one of us are called to do that. What about the rich? Well, he's got some humiliation coming. How does God humiliate the rich? Takes them through trials. It's what he just talked about. You're rich and the stock market crashes. Well, what do I do now? You're rich and someone sues you and now you're poor. How many people I've known in my life, how many people have you known in your life that were very well off? I remember there was a couple in our church uh, when I was first in Conway and uh, he had been a millionaire and he got a brain tumor. The surgeries ate up their money. They had a beautiful home in Dallas, Texas. They had to sell their home. They moved to Little Rock and they were living in a little rented apartment and now they were poor. You know the wonderful thing? They were happier than they were when they were rich <laughs> because they were blessed 
in their relationship with the Lord. It's a good thing to be humiliated. Why is it a good thing to be humiliated, by the way? It's going to come up again. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. James is going to take us through the whole process when we get into the later part of the book of how we are to learn that humbling before the Lord. The flower of the field, as the flower of the field will pass away. You know, we were just talking today with someone and they talked about how the rain sometimes hits the desert and the flowers just blossom and it's so beautiful and then the sun comes up and in two hours they're burned up. What did Jesus say? Look at the flowers of the field. Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as these flowers are. But how long do they last? They blossom, the sun hits them, they begin to wither, and they die. You know the richest man, the richest woman in the world? That's about all it's going to be. It's going to be that brief moment of time in the whole span of eternity that they seem to have it all. But if they don't have Christ, they don't have anything. When John tells us, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all of these things are going to pass away and the world is going to pass away with them. We need to learn to be humble. We need to learn to allow God to humble us. You say, I have no pride first words out of the mouth of an arrogant person. <laughs> we all have pride and we battle it constantly. To be humbled is a good thing and to pass away in the form of that attitude of superiority and that attitude that I have all I need instead of allowing that son of God's testing and God's trial to rise in our life and it begins to heat up our life, it begins to burn us and we begin to watch things fall away and drift away and it's all things that we can do without and that we need to do without. When God takes something from you, he has something better he wants to give you. God never took anything from one of his children that he didn't have something better to give. If we can ever learn that lesson, if we can learn the faithfulness of God, if we can learn the love of the Heavenly Father, if we can learn His wisdom in His plan, if we can learn His providence, if we can just master that Old Testament, New Testament text, Genesis 50, 20, Romans 8 and verse 28, you intended it against me for evil. God intends it for good. Listen, it doesn't matter where the evil comes from, who the evil comes from, if God allows it to break through the hedge of protection that he has around your life, it's because he has a purpose for it in your life. Job, richest man in ancient times, a man who had everything, and God allows Satan to break through the hedges around his life, and Satan speaking with God as he's begging God to give him a chance to get at Job. And what does he say? I can't get to him. You have put a hedge around him. Listen closely. You have put a hedge around him. That's a personal hedge. You have put a hedge around his family. That's a family hedge. You have put a hedge around all that he has. And God says, tell you what I'm going to do. You think he'll curse me if I let you test him? I'm going to break the hedge down. You know where that picture comes from? I've spent time with the Maasai in Kenya. 
The Maasai live in lion country. The Maasai warriors, if you ever see pictures of them, they walk around in these red robes that they drape over their shoulders and they all carry spears and they're fierce warriors. And I asked one of them when I was there, we looked way out across the Rift Valley and I saw one of the Maasai herdsmen with one of their herds of sheep and goats. And I said, you guys wear that red blanket. I said, you can see that from miles away. Why do you wear that? The lions can see you easily. And he said, we want them to see us. They fear us. I have a friend over there who killed a leopard by himself with a spear. I met an old man over there named Simo who was 70, 70, 71 years old, who a couple of months before I got there had killed the biggest lion of his life with his spear. You know what it was trying to do? It was trying to get through the hedge. They call the hedge the boma. They take the thorn bushes and they stack them up. And you've maybe seen this in pictures like uh, they show it in the ghost and the darkness and things like that. They build a boma of these thorn bushes and then they bring their cattle inside and then they pull the gate shut and the lions are trying to get through like Satan was trying to get to Job and if they can find a way through, they're going to break through and they're going to wreak havoc. Satan said, I can't get to him. What is Satan? He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And there's going to come a time in your life when he's going to go to the Lord and he's going to say, Lord, I want to test that person. Let me at them. Just let me at them. I'll destroy their faith. And God may at that time say, I'm going to break down the hedge. I'm going to let you in. I'm going to see what faith this child of mine has. Listen, he knows. Remember the story in Genesis 22? And it came about at that time that the Lord tested Abram. And he said to Abram, take now your son. And then to make sure he didn't think of Ishmael, your only son, even Isaac, whom you love, take him to a mountain that I'll show you and offer him there to me. You know, one of the most telling things in that whole story, very next verse, Abraham woke early in the morning and cut the wood and loaded the donkey. He was eager and ready to do the will of God. And Hebrews tell us, tells us, why? Because he concluded God made the promise of a Messiah through Isaac. If he has to raise him from the dead, he'll raise him from the dead. And then the author of Hebrews says, from which he received him in a figure. What an amazing plan God has. Don't be fearful. Don't be double-minded. Don't, don't let it destroy your life when God takes something from you. He has something better to give you. I've got to move on. Verse 12 Blessed is the man that endures temptation. James is kind of wrapping up the idea here that he started in verse 2 when he said, count it all joy. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You have in your notes there on page 6, down toward the bottom, five crowns that are offered in the New Testament. You have the imperishable crown of 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. You have the crown of joy in Philippians 4, 1, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. You have the crown of life in James chapter 1, and verse 12, our passage. You have the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4, 8, the crown that Paul was looking forward to. 
And then you have the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5, 4, which is often called the pastor's crown. Have you ever sang that song, Will There Be Any Stars in My Crown? You better first worry about whether you're going to have a crown. <laughs> right? Each of these is given for faithfulness in a different area of life. Crown that's imperishable, spiritual self-discipline. Crown of joy, that's the evangelist or the witnesser's crown for leading people to Christ. The crown of life, James tells us, for enduring trial in faith. The crown of righteousness, Paul says toward the end of his life, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me and not to me only, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Could I ask you a question? Are you living day to day in these dark and perilous times, eagerly looking for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought about the fact that the New Testament ends with a prayer? Do you remember the prayer that the New Testament ends with? Revelation? Even so, come Lord Jesus. You know what I think? I think he's going to wait until his bride starts praying that prayer. When things get bad enough and things start hurting enough and his bride begins to pour out her heart and say, even so, come Lord Jesus, I think that may be when he's going to come. The crown of glory, of course, to the pastor who faithfully carries out his ministry. So he tells us that there's eternal reward, and I just want to suggest to you here that eternal reward is a part of a coin. If you think of a coin, a coin has two sides. There are two sides to the coin of the Christian life. Neither the Calvinist nor the Arminian understands this. Neither one of them can explain it. Eternal reward on the one hand, that's in eternity, discipline from God in time. Because when we get to chapter 2 next hour, and we get to faith without works is dead, and we start dealing with the issues that James is dealing with in that passage, the Calvinist says, this refers to a person who thought he was a believer, but was never one of the elect. That is false. The Arminian will say, this is a person who was a believer, but lost their faith, and therefore lost their salvation. That is totally false. We're going to see what James is actually talking about and what he's talking about brings together two sides of the plan of God. You cannot live any way you want as a believer because of divine discipline. Divine discipline is going to spank you. It's going to chasten you. It's going to correct you. It's going to bring you back into fellowship and faithfulness or it's going to reach the extreme stage. It's going to take you home. You know, if we become so ineffective, so useless, so destructive, really, to other people as a Christian, God has a solution for that. Come on home. You'll read about people that that happened to, Ananias and Sapphira, of course, in Acts 5, and then the sinful man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as well. There is a time when the best thing God can do for you, and really, he does it in mercy, a believer out of fellowship is not a happy believer. A believer who is unproductive is not a happy believer. A believer who doesn't say, my life has meaning, my life has purpose, I know day by day that there is something that God has for me to do. 
Here they have all of the spiritual provisions of God's grace, all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, and they're scraping around and scratching around. I often tell people, some Christians are like turkeys. They walk around with their head on the ground all the time. You know, they're pecking around on the ground. Oh, look how miserable it is. Look what's happening. Look at how dark it is. It's, I'm sure it's going to be worse tomorrow. <laughs> you know, you know people like that. And then others are like the eagle. And that's what God's called us to be. We're to look up. We're to rise above the storm. We're to accept the challenges of life. And we're to realize that it's not all about me. It's about those around me. It's about my sphere of influence. This is my mission field. My family, my relatives, my friends, my neighbors. This is why God has me in the place that he has me in. You know, I've found an amazing thing. As soon as we stop focusing on our own problems, difficulties, and concerns and worries, and we start doing everything we can to lift, to encourage, to strengthen, to minister to those around us, all of a sudden, all those things, it's, it's no longer dark. The sun comes out from behind the clouds and begins to shine into our life because we're letting the light of Christ shine into the lives of other people. So I encourage you, endure your trials and endure them with joy. And why the joy? Knowing it's doing something in time, bringing me a spiritual maturity, knowing it's doing something in eternity, and that is laying up treasure in heaven. Lay not up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust corrodes and destroys and thieves break in to steal. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. That treasure will last forever. Let's move on. As we read verses 13 to 18, let no one say when he is tempted. I'm being tempted by God. You know, some people do the opposite. They say it's the devil made me do it. <laughs> let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. I just want to point something interesting out to you. The word for trial that we see up there in uh, verse Two, and we come down to temptation in verse 12 and then temptation here in these verses. It's all the same word. And there's a reason why trial and temptation both come from the same word. Because whenever God tests you, Satan's going to tempt you. Do you ever think about that? Study Job. When God tested Job, did Satan tempt Job? Absolutely. He cried out in his anguish. He screamed to the heavens. Why was I even born? Why didn't I die a stillbirth? Why was I even brought onto the earth? Why won't God just kill me and get me out of here? I've heard Christians say similar things. Because in the test, the test of our faith, by the way, the purpose of the test is for refining. The word testing is a word that refers to purifying through fire. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 1, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, may be found unto praise and honor. We were just singing praise, right? We love to sing praise. Can you imagine if there's praise going up in heaven when you're standing before the presence of the Lord because of what you let him do in your life? I love good singing and I love songs with good content, but I'll tell you what, nothing is going to compare to the praise. You ever wonder why when you read Revelation chapter 4 and 5, every time you see the saints, what are they doing? They're doing two things. They're singing and they're throwing their crowns at Jesus' feet. 
Do you know why they're singing? Because they have crowns to throw at Jesus. <laughs> Think about it. So when we bring all of that into life, does it begin to make sense of James saying, count it all joy, knowing we know something. God is refining. God is purifying. He is heating up that gold so the impurity comes to the top so that he can wipe it away like a good goldsmith until he can look down into that pot of melted gold and see his own reflection. The Bible calls it conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And I hope that each and every one of us can say, I am more like him today than I was six months ago, a year ago. Not a finished product. Not having the idea that we've attained. So much yet to go, but knowing that we're drawing closer day by day. I'm going to have to move on. Never say when you're tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil. Neither does he himself tempt anyone. James is telling us here about the purity of divine character. Cannot be touched by evil. Verse 14, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust. King, the new King James says desires. I prefer lust. I think it's more of a graphic term. He is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. A couple of things that I want to point out here. When James says that we are drawn away our own desires, he uses a fishing term. It's a term that means to lure with bait. When you go out after a fish and you take that hook and you put that worm on the hook and you toss it in and that fish sees it, what does he see? He sees the worm. He doesn't see the hook. When Satan throws a temptation in front of you that appeals to your lust and you look at it, what do you see? You see the worm. But there's a hook. In every temptation, there's a hook. And when that hook pulls tight, and suddenly you find yourself caught and you say to yourself, what in the world have I done? What in the world have I done? Particularly when it causes damage to the lives of those around us. Don't be drawn away. Don't be deceived. By the way, James is very concerned about deception. You'll notice that he mentions it over and over again. It's going to come up again in verse 26. Don't be deceived. Take this down if you've never thought about it before. Every time you're deceived, it's because you cooperated. You can't be deceived unless you cooperate. You know what the worst deception is? When you deceive yourself. Because you're both the liar and the one that believes the lie. Don't be deceived. How can I not be deceived in a world that is full of deception? Only one way, the Word of God. Saturating my soul with the Word of God. Second thing I want to point out in verse 18 of his own will, he brought us forth. The word will is bulamai, and it means his divine decree. It's the very same word that is used in 2 Peter chapter 3, 9, when it says 
God is not willing that any perish, but that all come to repentance. And that tells us that by the decree of God, Christ went to the cross, died for every member of the human race because the decree of God was that he would provide salvation for every single member of the human race. It's just one little thing standing in the way and it's something God will never violate and that is your ability to say yes or no. We have to receive it because he will not violate that sovereignty that he placed in us. It's great to understand the sovereignty of God. We need to get back to understanding the sovereignty of man. You say, where do you find that in the Bible? At the very beginning, God created Adam, placed him in the garden and gave him what? He gave him dominion over all the earth. Do you know what the word dominion is? God has dominion over all things. Adam was placed in dominion over the earth. And what did he say? He said to reproduce, to, to plenish the earth, to fill the earth and to dominate it, to rule over it. And he's not going to violate that commission that he gave us from the very beginning. God's marvelous plan is for our salvation, and he is a father who loves us and a father who gives and gives and gives and keeps on giving. It's in his nature to give. Receive what he has to give you. You say, why do I not feel like I'm receiving in my life? Because maybe you're not receiving the most important thing. Do you see where we are now as we come to verse 19? So then, my brethren, because I want you to rejoice in your trials, because I want you to understand that wisdom is something you can ask for and receive because I want you to understand whether you're rich or poor, you have equal provision and equal standing in the presence of God because I want you to live a life that will make it possible to stand before your Savior and have him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, and to hand to you the treasures that you laid up in heaven because I want you to understand that temptation comes from the devil on the outside and from lust on the inside, and they work together to deceive you and lead you to stray. I don't want you to fall. I want you to understand the goodness, the kindness, the graciousness, and the mercy of your heavenly Father. He never changes. There is no shifting shadow with him. He is always the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the time you feel most guilty and the time you feel most beat down, and I've been there. I've had times when I felt like I was crawling so low I'd have to reach up in order to take hold of the earth. Those are the times you need to believe and you need to understand that the love of God for you, his care for you, his provision for you, his plan for you has not changed. We change, he never changes. We fail, he never fails. We are fickle in our love and fickle in our devotion and fickle in our service. He is not fickle in any way. He is the sun that shines bright at every time in our life and in our soul. So then my brethren, now you understand the conclusion let everyone be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. 
Here we are tonight. We're looking at God's word. I'm speaking his word to you. Are you swift to hear? The word swift has the idea of eager. It means that you're going to get past every obstacle. It means that you hear that the word is going to be proclaimed. You're going to make sure you're there. By the way, I would say this to the members of our church. I believe in the local church. I believe in it so strongly. Every believer should be a member of a local church. You say, I can't find one that's good enough. Then you go into it and make it good enough. Find the best that you can find and become a member. If it's not working, gather a group of believers together and start your own little house gathering. But don't sit and complain about there's no good churches. Find one, be a part of it. And I say this to the members of the Living Truth because someday your loyalty needs to be to the local church. Right? Not here. Now, I'm not going to chastise you if you come, but I am telling you. <laughs> your loyalty. And I'm not just saying this because Chris is here. This, You guys know that this is what I believe. We've got people here that have been with us since the 1970s. There are people that are here that were in our first church. And they know that this is what I believe. Be devoted to your local church. Support your local church. Serve your local church. Because that is the body that God has placed you in. So my beloved brethren, be swift to hear. You say, well, I don't like what he's saying. Well, you just broke the second rule. <laughs> Slow to speak. Say, how do, what does he mean, slow to speak? Hey, did your mom ever say to you, button your lip? <laughs> and sometimes it's not speaking with the mouth, it's just the mental rebuttal. How can I become that kind of person? I don't want my wrath to interfere with the righteousness of God. Isn't it easy, uh, amazing how easy we become angry? How many times have you flared up today? How many times have you seen other people flare up today? I can tell by the grin on your faces that you've seen it. <laughs> it doesn't work the righteousness of God. So what do we do? Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and the overflow. By the way, the word overflow, the best picture I can give you, the meaning of this word is when your toilet backs up and runs over on the floor. That's what that word means. It's backed up. It's a backed up sewer. Your sin nature is like a toilet is just waiting to get clogged up and spill all over the floor. How do I lay all of these things aside? It's very simple. Be honest about them. Go to your heavenly father and say, I've sinned. This is my thoughts. This is the words that I've spoken, the things that I've done. Paul promises us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, that if we will cleanse ourselves from these things, we will be a vessel of honor fit for the master's use. Isn't that the desire of your life? I hope it is. Receive with meekness the implanted word. You say, well, I don't feel very meek. Don't worry, God will get you there. Your car is about to break down. Your washer is going to break down too. You're going to get sick. He'll get you there. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your life. It's able to save your soul. From what? I want you to notice that James has done two things, and this is most important. He's defined two terms that he's going to use again in chapter 2. And because he defined them in chapter 1, we should not confuse ourselves when we get to those two terms 
in chapter 2, and yet that's what almost every commentator in the book of James does. They reject his own definition of his own terms, and they define the terms by their own idea in chapter 2. You say, what are those terms? Number one, death. What happens when sin enters into your life? When sin enters into your life, temptation enters into your life, what happens? Death comes, right? He's defined it. When desire is conceived, verse 15, it gives birth to sin. When sin, when it's finished, is full grown, it brings forth death. You know what he's given us in that verse? A mother, a daughter, and a granddaughter. Can you see them? Desire conceives. There's conception. There's mom. Mom gives birth. What she give birth to? Sin. There's the daughter. What happens to sin? Well, sin conceives too. What does it bring forth? Death. He's just defined. Faith without works is dead. I hope you get this because this is really important. Faith without works is dead. Guess what? He's going to prove in chapter 2 that works without faith is dead too. So he's defined death in the life of a believer as what I would call a life of carnality. If you're living a life of carnality, you're dead. Operationally, functionally, as far as any benefit in your life, as far as any growth, you're dead. So lay aside all this filthiness so that your soul can be saved. He just defined the kind of salvation he's talking about. He's talking to believers. He's talking about being delivered from sin. He's talking about being delivered from false notions of what God is like. He's talking about being delivered from complaining and whining about the things that happen to us in life. He's talking about being saved not only from a fruitless life, but from a life without growth, without moving to spiritual maturity. Isn't it easy when the Bible just interprets itself? how I like to look at it. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Here we come up with deceived again. He mentioned it in verse 16. Here it is again, deceiving yourself. You're the liar and you're the person that believes a lie. That's a bad situation. What is the person that's so deceived? They hear the word and they don't do it. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man that looks at his natural face in the mirror. The word natural, by the way, means birth face. The literal Greek is you look at your birth face. Let me ask you tonight, what is your birth face? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. When the Bible talks about being born again, that's the face. When you look into Scripture, Scripture shows you what your face should look like. Your birth face is a reflection of Jesus Christ. Your birth face is the face of a child of God. Your birth face is a reflection of the glory of your Savior. And you look in the Word, and as we see James unfolding these things, we see the kind of person that we are in Christ. We also see how we fail. You know, those smudges, and your hair is messed up, and your, your tie is crooked, or whatever, and we see those things. That they need to be corrected. Right? So we look into the Word as a mirror and we observe ourselves and we go away and we immediately forget what kind of man he was, you know? You, you look like Elmer Fudd in the mirror and you walk away thinking you're Clark Gable. <laughs> right? 
The word shows us honestly. It's showing us tonight honestly who we are and what we look like. And if we feel like it's showing us that we don't look very good, do you know why? Because we don't look very good. If it's convicting us, it's telling us you don't look so hot. You need to make some corrections. And why? Because the corrections should bring you to a point where you look the way you ought to look. And what is that? The unique reflection of Jesus Christ that is you. Did you know that no one else on this earth, no one in all of human history can reflect Jesus Christ quite the way that you can? You're unique. And he wants to reveal himself through you in a way that he can through anyone else. Don't forget what kind of person you are. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty, what is the perfect law of liberty? It's the law of God's grace. It's the law that sets us free. We're free in Christ. Jesus said, if the Son shall make you free, you're a little bit free, right? Is your Bible different? If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. The perfect law of liberty is the Word of God, and we continue in it. The word continue is important. It means to dwell in it. It means to abide. It means to live in it. You remember what Jesus said to the disciples in John 15, 10? You are my friends. This is the passage where he's talking about abiding in me. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Want to be a friend of God? I do. We're going to see in chapter 2 that Abraham did something and he was called a friend of God. Wouldn't you like to stand in his ranks? Every one of us can. One who is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. This one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he's religious, and I hope we don't have anyone here, the word religious basically means to be pious, to be reverent, to be faithful, to be, we would say, spiritually successful. If you think you're spiritually successful and you don't bridle your tongue, oh man, is he going to pick up on this again in chapter 3? He's deceiving his own heart. This one's religion, whatever that shell that he wraps himself in is useless. The word useless means vain, empty, without content. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a spiritually mature believer. I just became mature last Friday. <laughs> what does it mean if I can't even bridle my tongue? I have to tell you, this convicts me. I battle my tongue, I battle my thoughts, but words are things that slip out so easily and they do so much damage. Remember the little lie that we were told as kids? Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Could I suggest to you there's no stick or stone in the world that can hurt you as bad as words? You know that's true, don't you? Be careful what you say. Verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. You know, I love the way the Bible makes it so simple. When the people came to John the Baptist and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And various groups came to him and said, what shall we do? What shall we do? And 
His people came and said, what shall we do? And he said, here's, here's the sum total. I'm going to give it to you in a very succinct way. You have two coats. There's a guy that doesn't have one. Give him one. So simple. The soldier said, well, what shall we do? John said, be content with your wages and don't do violence to any man. What does the scripture say? What did Jesus say? Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is not difficult. This is the easy way to live life. This is the way to get rid of the burdens of life. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. There it is. To visit the widows and the orphans. The word visit, by the way, doesn't mean drop in on them and have a cup of tea. The word visitation as it's used here is the same when it speaks of the Messiah who would visit his people. It means to come and meet their needs. It means that you go to them knowing that you can supply something that they're lacking. To visit the widows and the orphans. To take some of their burden on you, minister to them, ease their pain, dry their tears, and encourage their heart and keep oneself unspotted from the world. Could I ask you tonight as I close, are you unspotted? In all honesty, looking into the word of God, as James spoke to us, are you unspotted? You know, if there's that little pang, if, if the spirit of God's putting his finger somewhere in your conscience and there's that little pang, you know how hard it is to be unspotted? Let him wash you. Do you know what the disciples were doing when they went into the upper room? Luke tells us. They were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in heaven. And when they entered in and that bowl of water was sitting there to wash their feet, they probably all looked at each other like, you're going to wash my feet? Come on, I'm the greatest. And none of them would do it because none of them thought that they were that lowly. And then Jesus shocked them all as he walked in and laid aside his garment and wrapped that towel around him and humbled himself. Can you imagine the second member of the Godhead, the Savior of the world, going to the cross the next day and saying, let me wash your feet. Peter said, you're never going to wash me. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And he's not meaning he's not saved. He's saying, we're not in fellowship. You're not participating with me. Our fellowship is broken. And Peter said, well, then give me a bath. And Jesus said, no, no, you've already been bathed. You've already been cleansed, but your feet are dirty. When you and I are unspotted or, or spotted, when we're defiled, what do we have to do? Go to him and let him humble himself again and let him do what he did before and acknowledge the dirt, the filth, whatever it may be, be honest, be open, and lay it out before him. You know what he does? He'll wash you so that you're whiter than snow. You say, well, I do that a couple of times a day, but then I get embarrassed. What did Jesus tell Peter? How many times must I forgive my brother? He's thinking of Andrew. Probably looking over at Andrew like, how many times do I have to forgive him? Seven times enough? 
He's probably thinking, I'm on six already today. <laughs> Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. Do you think he would do less? Do you not think that he would do infinitely more than what he asked us to do? Come boldly before his throne of grace and he will cleanse you and restore you to fellowship. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the Spirit of God who brings it alive in our minds and in our life. Bless each one of us, Father, as I believe you've spoken to us this evening. There are things that you say to each of us that are personal and private as the Spirit of God convicts us. Help us, Father, not to look into the word and walk away and forget who we are in Christ and what we're intended to be and what you are making of us as we continue to allow you to do that spiritual surgery in our souls. Make us like your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.